Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. This one's going to be a bit of a potpourri, so to speak, of different topics. There's been a, I've been getting a lot of comments, emails, and suggestions for podcasts from folks, and I figured it'd be time to address some of these. So yeah, it's good to do one of these every once in a while. It makes things a little more interactive. Uh, first off, I just want to point out that I did another Caribbean Diversity Color video. We rehoused one of the, well, it was a baby, one of the ones I produced from my female and put her into a nice shiny new acrylic enclosure. It was one of the primal cages. This cool one, I believe it's called Contra, that it's actually reversible, kind of like the Jamie's enclosures thing where you can use it either as an arboreal or a terrestrial. I love those because they really do give you, you know, a, a lot more flexibility as far as what you're going to do with the cage. But anyway, as is always the case when I put this up, a lot of folks chimed in about how they keep their carabina species. And this has been something that pops up quite a bit. Uh, unfortunately, people are still struggling with keeping these guys alive. It looks like the majority of folks on the comments were pointing out the fact that they have had little trouble. That's the big thing with these guys. We found that they really seem to need that airflow. You need to have some type of air current going through it. You can get away with it with other tarantulas and not have the cross ventilation. And I've had folks say that, you know, the older avicularia species and the older carabina species, and remember for folks that are just getting into the hobby, carabina versicolor used to be avicularia versicolor. So that's why we kind of group them together. They are very similar in their care and similar in the fact that some seem to die of the mysterious SADS or sudden avic death syndrome. But it seems like Unlike other species where you can get away with kind of not following those rules as far as husbandry, these guys not so much. And I will say that I continue to get folks that will message me and email me and leave comments saying that they picked them up and out of nowhere they died. In some of the cases, I will immediately ask them to send me photos of the enclosures. And most of the time, not all of the time, and this is what kind of makes I think people pause when they go to pick one of these up. Most of the time, it's a situation where I look at the picture and go, your substrate looks very, very moist. Well, yeah, it, it didn't. It looked lethargic, so I added more water to it. Or your substrate looks very, very moist. Yes, I read somewhere that you need to keep them very moist. They need high humidity. I had somebody just send me one that they had set up. It was a two-inch juvenile, which they had set up in an Exoterra Nano, and they had replaced the top with the drilled plexiglass, and there weren't as many holes in it as I would have liked for my taste, and that's the thing with the Exoterra Nanos, they seem to be really good for the adult specimens, the older specimens, but they don't offer a whole heck of a lot of cross-ventilation, you have that little vent under the front door that allows you, in theory, if there's airflow in there, it allows the air to go through that vent and up through the top, so it does keep air circulating, which is great. But they had put in a ton of, uh, they had pretty deep substrate and it looked wet, very wet. And there was a bunch of moss, it looked wet, and they had a real plant in it, a live plant. So I also noticed when looking at the picture a little more closely that there was a, a thermometer, hygrometer, one of those zoom med things stuck in the back and the needle was pinned into the high range. So the humidity in that thing was through the roof. They were using a hygrometer. And again, for folks, I've had some folks come to me. There's obviously differing opinions on this now, and there's folks out there that are talking about they use, you know, the hygrometers, thermometers, and everything. I'm not going to get into that aspect of it in this podcast, but as far as avicularia species are concerned, if you're worrying about keeping humidity high in there, if you're using a hygrometer to make sure it doesn't dip, the humidity doesn't dip too low, I'm sorry, you're you're going to experience difficulties. I've shared the story that when I first got my, it was a avicularia versicolor back then, carabina versicolor sling, I set it up in one of those Jamie's enclosures, had the little 
vent in the front. I had maybe a half inch of substrate in it. It was the cocoa fiber, and it had, it was one of those deals where it immediately dried out, and I didn't pack it down, so it was all fluffy. And she had a little cork bark and a little plant in the back, which I had hot glued to the back of the enclosure, and she made her little web and everything. But I explained that in the wintertime in my house, the heat would kick on. The air would get very, very dry. If I have a you know one of those all-purpose thermometer, hygrometers things, it's a digital one that I just kind of gives me a general ballpark figure, at least back then, of what the temperature was and if the humidity got too low. And that thing would dip into the teens, sometimes 11, it's 11% as far as humidity during the wintertime when our furnace was running because it was running quite a bit. And at that time, what I would do is I would take a little eyedropper and I would just moisten down a little corner of the substrate. I did eventually put a little teeny water dish in there, but for a while, I didn't even have the water dish. This was back, you know, when I first started, so I'll call myself on on that. And then I would take a little, I had a little teeny spray bottle, and I would just kind of spritz the webbing around the thing before bedtime. And every once in a while, I'd catch her come out drinking off the webbing or drinking off the side of the enclosure. That little wet spot that I created, especially in the wintertime, dried out very, very quickly. It was fluffy cocoa fiber. Take some fluffy cocoa fiber, spray it down, see how long it is before it's bone dry. It won't be that long. And and she did great. She thrived. She, I never had any issues. Now, I get folks wanting, to, you know, freaking out about hearing to keep them dry, especially because there's still tons of stuff out there saying they need to be kept moist. I was just reading an article the other day about avicularia care, and it was talking about how they crave moisture. And I was like, oh boy, this is what sets people up for failure, I think, is they read that and they're like, my God, if this thing dries out, I'm screwed. And they start, you know, again, I think I've talked to people who have started keeping them dry. They get worried that it's going to be the wrong thing, so they moisten things down a little bit, and then what happens is the avicularia or carabina species starts acting sluggishly, and they panic, and they're like, oh God, it's acting sluggishly, which could be due to the fact that they've you know created that dank environment, and it's responding to that, so they panic even more, and next thing you know what, they're moistening the substrate even more, and they're spraying it down two or three times a day, and that's what creates that death trap for them. So I get folks want to keep them moist or on the moisture side, and there are folks out there that have had great success keeping them moist, but talk to the folks that keep them moist and the big thing is there is a lot of ventilation so even though they're giving them that moist substrate even though they're you know keeping them on a little more on the wet side they've got the cross ventilation going through so that it doesn't allow that enclosure to become stagnant it doesn't allow honestly i'm guessing if you put enough even if you use moist substrate and you put enough ventilation in your enclosures, if you were to put a hygrometer in there, I'm guessing that it wouldn't be all that much higher than what it is outside. So I did, in this video, try to put in there, I did put in something about if you're going to keep them moist, you better make sure you have a lot of cross ventilation because there are going to be folks out there that do it regardless. I had somebody that came to me and said, hey, listen, I keep mine moist. I've done it now for a couple months. They're doing great. And the problem is, and this is why it's called sudden avicularia death syndrome, they seem to be doing great until they're dead. And that's what freaks everybody out. It's not like with some of our terrestrial species where you sometimes see one that you, you can kind of tell it's not right and it's not looking right. These guys seem to be fine. I talked to people that, that, you know, it was eating great. It molts. It comes out. It takes a cricket. The day later, it's dead. That type of instantaneous death. And I think... Over the years, like when this first started, I think it was a much bigger deal, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago when people were keeping them, they were just mysteriously dropping dead. We experimented with the whole keeping them dry or at least keeping them drier with a drier with a water dish. I should say that or periodic misting people. This is one of those ones where people talk about misting being terrible. And I once jumped on that bandwagon years ago, like you should never miss bull. 
you shouldn't use misting as your main means of hydration. That's the difference. Like if you have a moisture dependent species and you're just misting the substrate, it's not going to work out as well. However, misting as far as supplemental, a supplemental aid to say the moist substrate or to giving them a water dish, especially for some of the arboreal species, misting can be a, a very nice little tool as far as making sure that they have water because they will drink off the glass and plants. But I think we have come to a point with, even with all the extra information we have, the fact that we have updated husbandry guidelines, that as much as we like to pretend, and there's going to be people that are going to argue with me on this one, they can go ahead and argue me. There's people out there that will be like, hey, I've never had an issue raising a vicularia species. There's no problem. I get that, but it seems like it's still Avicularian carabina. It's still one of those ones that's a little more tricky than some of the other species, and I think it's because they are a lot less forgiving of some husbandry mistakes. I think they are—they're not as hardy as some of the other species out there. I don't—I I think we have enough information now. It's been years since I started and started trying to keep mine dry that this information has been out there. I've done many articles about it. I've seen many other people talk this—you know—about the same thing. Don't keep them overly moist. Make sure there's tons of of cross ventilation, and yet people are still losing them. So, I think. If you look at other species out there, like take the Lazyodora parahybana, for example, in theory, they should be get moist early on. As adults, they are definitely more hardy and adaptable to drier conditions. I have mine right now, dry substrate water dish. They do fine. and a lot of people keep them that way. That's one of those species where the band of the, you know, acceptable parameters for keeping them temperature, humidity is much, much wider. You keep them, I've, I actually, a lot of people will keep the juveniles dry, some will keep it moist. They, they're adaptable. They're going to survive even if one person's keeping them moist and one person's keeping them dry with a water dish. They're going to do okay. Avicularian carabina, not so much. That is a much more narrow band of acceptable conditions. And so I think that's why we're seeing these deaths. Now, I'm not saying this to scare people off, but I'm saying it in that after still continuing to field questions and get emails from people who are like, listen, I got this thing and suddenly it's dead. I don't know what happened. I think it's time to admit that yes, they are a little trickier to keep for some people. I, I, again, there's always people out there that I haven't had much problems with them. But there are people out there that seem to have some issues with them. We can't, you know, not acknowledge that. Is it completely because of the fact that there are still folks out there saying that they need to keep them moist or there's still folks out there that are keeping them overly moist? I do think that has a lot to do with it. But obviously, it does not discount the fact that compared to the majority, the vast majority of other tarantula species that are have been in the hobby for a while they're not quite as resilient. They're not quite as hardy. A lot of times when I do husbandry notes on things or I'm doing a video, I will mention the species is very hardy. And more often than not, that's with most of the species I've kept, not so much with the Vicula and Carabina. So I do think we need to admit they're a little trickier. I mean, bottom line, yes, I get some people are still not keeping them the way that we think they should be kept. But even so, I've, I have received, you know, emails. There's, they're not as many. Like I said in the beginning of this podcast, that the majority of them, I see pictures of the setups and it's like, man, that's way too wet or there's not enough ventilation. But I have also seen ones where they've sent me setups that look spot on. 
There's a water dish. There seems to be rather dry substrate. There's a lot of good cross ventilation. And they ended up with a dead Avic or a dead Carabina Versicolor. Not as often. I want to make that very clear, but it does happen. So again, every time I post one of these up, I feel bad because I know it's coming my way. And this time I will say there were a lot fewer folks that came in and came up and chimed in about there's dying mysteriously, which is great. It seems like we're starting to get the hang of it, but there are, you know, still instances out there of them dying. And I think that's something that folks, especially folks who are looking at these guys as beginner species. And I think that's where the the tricky part comes in because they are always recommended. I have two lists and they're on the Carabina versicolor. And I believe on one of them, I have Avicularia vicularia as good beginner species. And that's tough because I think it's good beginner species with a little asterisk. It's good beginner species. If you do all your homework and listen to what folks are saying and get lucky, they could be a great beginner species because it seems like the folks that are a lot of the folks that are picking these guys up are new into the hobby, haven't quite mastered that whole moisture thing, haven't quite mastered the whole cross ventilation thing. They're worried there's going to be too much. They're reading the tarantula keepers guy that flat out talks about, which I love. I, I was actually just paging through mine the other day. That's why it's on my mind. But flat out says in some places that you should restrict ventilation to keep things more humid. They're getting mixed messages. So beginners, if you're out there, anybody listening to this that's eyeballing these, be prepared when you get one. Don't just pick one up and then start doing your research and find some guy. It's like, oh yeah, they need 80% humidity. You will likely end up with a dead spider. Talk to some people that have kept them. Find out what they do, how they keep them, what they've had success with, the setups. I've told the story before how when I was first getting ready to get mine, I had a lot of bad information that said they need to be kept moist. And I actually spoke to somebody who had bred them, who had kept them. And he's like, listen, dude, keep them, keep them mostly dry. You can mist every once in a while. I put a water dish in when I fit one in, and they'll do just fine. So I got good info there, but do your research first. This is not one to impulse grab. This is not one to pick up without being confident you're going to be able to keep it correctly. I would also encourage folks to, if they're really worried about it, pick one up in the springtime when the heat's off in the house. Because one thing I've noticed is people will pick them up during the winter, and then you get the dry air, and that's what ends up getting them freaked out about the fact that, oh my God, the air is too dry. I got to moisten things up. Pick it at a time of year where it's a little warmer, a little, you know, overall the air is a little more moist, so that, that at least will keep you from committing the cardinal sin of keeping them too moist. So that would be my take on that. You know, just I, it's always a good one to update every once in a while because I do think it's it's a running issue in the hobby. It's it's something a lot of people experience. I can't tell you how many times I will get something. Somebody will go on to one of my avicularia videos or my carabina videos and they'll be like, hey, I'm getting my first carabina versicolor. Wish me luck. I hope it doesn't die. That's how we go into it. When I got my first carabina versicolor, I think I shared the story before. I was 100%. I got it. I was all excited. And I'm like, I'm going to kill this thing. I, I'm not ready. I'm going to screw it up. They're telling me to keep it dry. Everything's telling me to keep it moist. It was a bit of a nightmare. And I totally get that. So I do think, again, that's part of the problem. But I do also believe they can be good species as far as beginners if folks are prepared for them. So moving on, another... <laughs> I posted this video up and I got a comment and the person told me this was from Kyle F. He told me he gave me permission to talk about it on the podcast and I thought I'd bring it up. And Kyle, you did tell me I could have some fun with it, but I'm, I'm not going to be mean about it. I did do some research before I decided to respond to it. So anyway, Kyle said, silly question. What is your take on keeping avicularia species in a bird cage, maybe in a room with a humidifier? I don't know. I just saw some cages last time I was at a pet store and thought, hmm, would that work for an arboreal who needs plenty of ventilation? My fiance is dead set against it. Your fiance definitely has good instincts. 
You're basically her tarantula hero, though, so I figured I would get your take on the subject. Thanks. P.S. She listens to your podcast every day on her way to work. So if you were to answer this on your podcast, that would be awesome slash hilarious. So I think he knows where we're going with this. Um, Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I do appreciate that. So here's the deal. Before I never, I, I saw this and my first reaction was I thought of Tweety Bird and it's, you know, the, the old Looney Tunes in the quintessential birdcage, the big wire birdcage. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I'm like, you know what? Maybe they've they've got different bird cages out there. Maybe they do have ones out there that are ventilated differently. So I did, before I decided to a, a, a approach this, go on to Amazon, look up bird cages, go on to Petco, look up bird cages. And I'm clicking over right now to it. And yeah, I'm just seeing the Tweety Bird ones. I mean, they're all some type of wire or metal with huge gaps. So yes, I, I see where you're thinking here. And it's definitely, I considering all we talk about is how much ventilation they need, you look at these and obviously they are going to offer a huge amount of ventilation. There's going to be a lot of breeze coming through there. The first thing I would say flat out that would make them just not work at all for a tarantula is those gaps. I'm looking at the majority of the ones on here and I'm not seeing anything that wouldn't offer immediate escape for a large tarantula. They just There's too many gaps in them. Even the ones that have the little cubes, all they need to be able to do is get their carapace out of something, and it doesn't take that big of a, a gap for them to squeeze that through, then they can get out of it. So the majority of them, we'll just start here. The majority of them would just offer too many means of escape for the tarantula. I am looking at one here, Paw Hut 44-inch, hexagon-covered, canopy portable, aviary flight bird cage with storage. It looks like it has little teeny slats as far as I'm out. I, I just wouldn't trust it in that. Like, you'd have to build something for the substrate as well because you got to have dirt in there. You would likely, I mean, I guess if you were to plant it and have, because you need cover for these guys too. I, I just, the whole, that would be too much openings for me. I mean, I, I guess you can say there's no such thing as too much ventilation. That would worry me. So I don't think, just looking at these, the amount of work you'd have to do to make this an acceptable tarantula home would probably cost you more than it would be worth. And even then, I'd be worried about the the escaping. So my gut instinct would be, no, I'm going with the fiance on this one. So if you're listening, I wish I had your name. I'd say your name, but I'm definitely agreeing with you. I wouldn't, I get the line of thinking. I definitely appreciate it. And it's, again, if there was something different out there, a different design, maybe it would work. But I just think for... The majority of cages offered, it just wouldn't be a, a viable option for a tarantula. That would be my thought on it. If somebody's, and again, we always open it up. I never like to be closed-minded. So if somebody out there did some type of retrofitting or, you know, adapted a cage meant for a bird for a tarantula, please let me know. Post pictures. I will definitely revisit it. I, I would say no on this one. So hopefully that works. And I didn't make fun of it. I did. I gave it a good... You know, I did a little research to see if there was something out there because I didn't want to misspeak. But from what I'm seeing, the average birdcage, no, I wouldn't go with that. All right, so for the next part of our podcast for today, I've been getting some emails. And I'm going to apologize right off the bat. I am behind on correspondence. And I hate to say it, it's going to be like this for a little while. I did go back to teaching. They changed my teaching assignment the first day back from school, which the good news is I'm teaching. Like I'm actually the other last week I had classes with over 20 freshman students in it. It's been so long since I've been able to work a classroom and go around, have fun. The kids are learning. We're, we're having a good time. They like the class. I'm enjoying the interaction with the kids. It's awesome. So I'm not complaining. However, because I got the assignment so late, I'm now spending a lot of time trying to make sure I'm planning meaningful activities and lessons to go with my class. 
And unfortunately, that's taking up a lot of time and a lot of time that I would normally be doing messages or, you know, emails. So just a heads up, I'm struggling. And again, real life sometimes comes in, bites you in the butt. I do have a family. I do have my job, which is taking up a lot of time, which spends, I spend a lot of time on a computer and on email and writing stuff. So don't take it personally. If I don't get right back to you, I'm, again, I'm horribly behind. It's just the way it is. I feel bad, but I do have some people that get very anxious and, and nudgy. And again, I'm sorry I can't get back to you, but I'm a one-man show here. I'm the one that answers all the comments if somebody emails or messages, and I just don't have enough time in the day to do it all. Plus, keep in mind, I have a collection of 240-something animals over here that I work with, that I enjoy working with. Like, feeding time takes hours. I enjoy it. And I need to make sure that my own stuff is done before I go play around with the Thomas Big Spider stuff. So just a heads up there. So this one is from Stephen Davies. Stephen, I started writing an answer back to this and I got pulled away from the computer and I apologize. So I figured what better way to answer back than you said right off the bat, you listen to the podcast. Hopefully you're going to hear this. I will eventually finish that email, but I will address it here as well because I do think you brought up some good comments. So first of all, he said, hey, Tom, hope you're well. I've listened to close to every episode of your podcast. Thank you. I haven't gotten to the newest one yet, but I will tonight. I'm a biology student at Towson University. I'm doing my second accredited research project on tarantulas. Thank you. I love hearing stuff like this because, again, I'm always complaining there's not enough study going on with tarantulas. I can send you the report of my spring experiment. Yes, please. But I'm hoping to have it peer-reviewed soon. In spring, I performed an experiment of how 20 curly T. albos had different feeding behavior with different types of lighting, red, UVB, and fluorescent. Not only did the spiders eat more frequently under the red lighting, they grabbed the prey most quickly. They also grabbed the prey the slowest and ate the least under UVB lighting. Feel free to mention this wherever you'd like. Well, hopefully it's okay mentioning on the podcast because I found this fascinating. So I definitely would love to see that report. And if it's possible, I would love to be able to talk about it if I see it. But if it's getting peer-reviewed and I'm not supposed to say anything, just let me know. Does this count? Hopefully this didn't just screw everything up. But you did say I could share it, so we're sharing it. Anyway, this semester, my project is temperature versus growth rate of those same 20 T. albo and 20 LPs. We have a strong indication on what the results will be, but we'll be doing this in a formal setting. That's going to be fantastic stuff. I know every single video I put higher temperatures may lead to higher metabolisms. Every time I post a video up, we hear a lot of situations where folks do report faster growth in spiders. And a lot of times it's higher temperatures. Not always. We just had a situation where somebody had a, I think it was B. Smithy that was growing at an astounding rate. And I said, oh, where are you? You know, what are your temperatures? Well, they were on the East Coast and their temperatures are like 70. So there's a weird one there. So I definitely love to see the report on UV lighting. That's, I think, very interesting. And I know a lot of folks, I used to do this as well, would have red lights on the tarantulas at night so we can observe them. So that's interesting. I would wonder if, if there was any way to measure what they do in the dark, if it's, if they register the UVB light, uh, the red light at all, or if there's any difference in the dark, but awesome. And definitely would love to hear the results of the experiment with the growth rate versus temperature and hopefully that's one you can carry out long afterwards because I do think we need to see something as far as like long term like 10 years what are we looking at are we taking any because the big 
argument out there is that if you get it too warm, you're actually taking years off their life because some of them will experience colder temperatures during the month, may not eat as much, but just awesome stuff. Anyway, Stephen also went on to give a bunch of potential podcast topics, which was fantastic. There are some amazing ones in here, some that I'm going to have to do some serious homework for. So thank you for that. And one of the ones that I've been asked several times lately, so we're going to kind of talk a bit about it today, are the prices of tarantulas in the hobby. He says, writes here, prices, the variability and nonsensical nature of them. And I think this is a good one to hit now because we have some new shops coming out. We have a lot of new spiders coming in. And I do have some thoughts on why they're so expensive. I I think in some respect, it's not going to be what people want to hear. But there's a reason for it, especially in the United States. Now, I think a lot of us that live in the U.S. that aren't, you know, maybe in on arachna boards or on tarantula forums or, you know, on Facebook groups where we're interacting with people from overseas or a lot of times I just get a lot of information through the comments of my videos. Things that are expensive over here are often quite inexpensive in Europe. And that's one thing we don't realize. We we think it's just universal. So right off the bat, a lot of the prices are United States. It's centered on the United States. Our prices can be quite high, even for tarantulas that seem to be rather readily available in the hobby. So I'm going to point to, you know, we'll start off talking about the GBB, the C. cyaneopubicans, and the one we just discussed here, the Caribbean versicolor. Those are two species that when I first started keeping slings and got really serious in the hobby, I picked up slings. They were pricier slings at that time. They were about $30 to $35 each. I have, I'm sure there's people out there right now going, oh, here we go. They're a lot more than that now. I've seen GBBs for $50, $60, $75. You know, I got mine. My first GBB was actually about an inch and a quarter. So it was a well-started spider and it was still like $30, $35. I don't remember the exact price. Nowadays, something like that, that size could run you 50, 60, depending, unless you get it on sale. Same thing with Caribbean Versicolor. That's one of the ones that's very readily bred. A lot of people have bred them in the States, but unfortunately, they're still expensive. So as far as species like that, it's the basic supply and demand. I mean, that's how, unfortunately, capitalism works. That's how you, you know, prices start jumping up on things. Keep in mind, we don't think of it this way, but in many ways, Tarantulas are like collecting. If anybody here has collected stuff, baseball cards, stickers, Magic the Gathering cards, Pokemon cards, comic books, there is obviously two very different things, but there is that collectible aspect of it where if you're able to grab something quickly when it first comes out, you're able to get it for a cheaper uh, price point. But once the things catch fire and people are looking for them, the price goes way up. And I've seen a similar type of thing with tarantulas. There are also the tarantulas that get really hot. So, for example, Zanestis species is one that people really want Zanestis species. There aren't enough Zanestis species to go around, so the prices go up. For Myctopus, I hate this because I feel like I'm partly responsible, but now all of a sudden they're the new designer spider where people are selling slings for 300 bucks, and it comes down to supply and demand. So as far as the United States is concerned, we do not do enough captive breeding to support our hobby. It's just, it's a fact. We are a large country. There are many states. There are some laws that prohibit certain ones from crossing state lines. It further complicates things, which makes things even more expensive some places. It comes down to we can't produce enough to support the hobby, and the hobby has exploded, especially in the past decade, and 
over the pandemic. You heard about people adopting pets because of the pandemic, you know, dogs, cats and stuff. The people, a lot of people got into the hobby. I've been hearing from so many people like, yeah, I'm stuck at home. I started looking at up tarantulas. Now I'm buying tarantulas. It's grown every year and become a huge, huge business. And unfortunately, as much as it's grown and we pulled more people in from the United States that are now, you know, joining the tarantula hobby, we're not able to support it with our own captive breeding. If we could captive breed, the prices would be lower. And that's why in Europe, the prices are much lower. There are They are light years ahead of us in captive breeding over there. Light years ahead of us. Like, it's not even funny, some of the stuff. I remember H. Polkerbees. I'll use that one as an example. H. Polkerbees over here at one point was selling that you get a sling for 100 bucks. Over in Europe, you're talking about some people are spending 25 bucks on it. Remember, people sh- sending me links. Look at what they are over here. Why? Because they got them into the hobby. They bred the heck out of them. They got a bunch of them in the hobby, so it was, the slings are readily available. And even though it was a popular spider, there were more than enough to go around. If a bunch of people are able to offer the same spider... Let's take one of the new super expensive ones, Birupis Simaroxagorum. Everybody over here suddenly in the United States, all the different people selling them have plenty to offer. So you can go out. Now what's going to happen? People are going to have to basically price check, price match. You know, all right, well, I have 150 of these I got to unload, but the other guy's got 150 of them as well, and he just dropped the price to $50. So I'm going to drop mine to $40. Now you get some of that competitiveness where the prices are starting to drop. And now if you're one of the ones that tries to command too much money for them, you're not going to sell them. Unfortunately, with species like that, they're not that prolific. They're not available. So the prices are much, much higher. And that's what, you know, what we're seeing now, plus the fact, where do we get all of the majority of our tarantulas from? They are imported from Europe. They not only have enough to supply the European countries, but a lot of them support the U.S. hobby. So everything we're getting, a lot of this stuff, when you join up to different uh, newsletters for different vendors, like say, hey, join our newsletter and find out the new import. That import isn't being imported from another state. It's being imported from overseas. They are paying lots of money. And I did a whole thing about brown boxing and how much it costs to be an importer and the cost of the license, the cost to actually ship because you have to ship your tarantulas overnight from, you know, Poland or England or Germany, wherever it may be coming from. You have to ship those overnight. That's like a lot of money. You have to pay to have them inspected. There's so much involved in it that the average, I'm going to throw out a number here, but the average import, you're talking at least, you know, a couple grand. That money gets tacked onto the price of the spider. So sure, somebody may import a bunch of, I don't know, we'll go T-Blondie, and they end up spending $30 each for them, for uh, T-Blondie. Obviously, you're going to have a markup. Even if they paid $30 each for them in the U.S., there would be a heavy markup to get their money back. However, now we have to to factor in the cost that it took to get these guys legally, we're not even going to get into the brown boxing aspect of it, legally into the country from overseas, that money has to be accounted for. So now that $30 price that might have been $60 goes up to $100, $120. It's a tough business. And I don't think a lot of folks realize how much of our stock in the United States comes from overseas. A lot of it. Somebody just asked me the other day, why the heck are P-Metallica so expensive? I was picking them up years ago. They're $120. We look at them now. They haven't gone down all that much. 
Well, another thing that factors in is how popular the spider is. Blue spiders are incredibly popular, and obviously P. metallica, one of the most sought-after blue spiders out there. But guess what? Once again, guess where they're all coming from? They're coming from overseas. So although they're breeding them, no problem over there, and we do have some breeding over here. I'm not to say that there aren't people in the United States breeding them. Tom Patterson is a god in the tarantula hobby because of how much he actually breeds over here, but we kind of need, like, I don't know, a thousand more Tom Pattersons to catch up to what's going on overseas. We need more people like that. And with a, an animal like the Pima Talga, species like the Pima Talica, if you're importing them, that price goes right up. So now you have one that people will pay a lot for anyway. They're used to paying a lot for, so that price probably isn't going to drop. They're not as readily available. Everybody doesn't all have them at once. That's a big one. I brought up a while back, we were talking about the P. murinus. And just to give you an example of how it can work, with the P. murinus, when I first got in the hobby, those were given away as freebies. I can't tell you how many people would get a P. murinus for spending like 100 bucks someplace. The slings, you would usually go to buy a P. murinus, and not only would they have like half-inch slings, but they would have one-inch slings, they would have one-and-a-half-inch juveniles, they were very readily available to the point where they couldn't give the things away. So what happened is those were one of the species that people were breeding a lot over here in the U.S. For a little while, I think people stopped breeding them as much because nobody wanted them. You bred a sack of OBTs, and I talked to people that like, I bred a sack of OBTs, nobody wants these things. They basically want to take them for free. So what happens is people stop breeding them. Then we had a period a couple of years ago where I went to go get a sling, and I couldn't find any. Like suddenly nobody, I was... Lord, nobody had them. And now what we're seeing is they're coming back. People are breeding them again because there's more interest in them, but the prices are much higher than they were before. I haven't seen many $5 OBTs. I mean, sometimes, and I will throw something out there, shows are a totally different animal. I can't tell you how many times people will come to me and go, yeah, I know you spent this much on it, but I just went to a show and it was cheaper. A lot of times a show, you'll find those better deals. So if you really want to find you know, the really low prices, go to the shows where there's a lot of competition. There's obviously, you can walk right over to another table and find the thing cheaper than you're going to buy from that person, not the one that has it more expensive. So shows are kind of that X factor, but that would be one of the species that was once, you know, we had so many of them in the hobby, they were cheap. And then unfortunately, remember, this is a business. People selling these things, selling these tarantulas, they, they deserve to earn their money back. That's a lot of work. I only have, two, you know, 200 something over here and I know the amount of time it takes to keep thousands of them and then to do the breeding projects. The majority of them, the people that sell them will try to breed them. Hours and hours of work. If you're importing them, another whole boatload of problems as far as, and money as far as the import, they deserve to get their money back. So if a species becomes too prevalent, then suddenly there's not a lot of money to be gained from selling them. That can be an issue as well. There are other species out there, like ones that we talk about that are super common, the Alpera hibana. Those, because of the size of the sacks, can be over 2,000 babies. Those are kind of a dime a dozen. Those are ones you see often sold. That's one of the ones kind of taking the place of the OBT as far as a lot of folks will have like half-inch L. parahibana, one-inch L. parahibana, one-and-a-half-inch L. parahibana. Female, take it. Like they're so, They make so many babies that they're cheaper. So the ones, if you see the ones that in the U.S. at least, and again, this I'm not talking about overseas, in the U.S. at least, if you see the ones that are cheaper. They are ones that we are probably A, breeding over here, and B, we have a lot of them. And that's why the prices have come down. Now, as far as the new and exotic species, that's blatantly obvious. I, I would think if there's a species that was just discovered, guess what? Somebody spent an exorbitant amount of money to get a breeding pair. Those first babies are going to cost a lot of money. 
And if you want one, you're going to pay a lot of money for them. I've, I've heard the arguments, and I went through this a while back with the, uh, was the it was the Fauna Pelma, the Moray, where people were freaking out because they're like, everybody should be able to own these. I don't understand why the prices are so high. Well, because there's not a lot of them out there. If you have, you know, people see these pictures of these blue spiders. They're gorgeous. If you have, I don't know, we'll just do a conservative number. 2,000 people see this and go, I need this spider. Yet you have a sack with 150 or you imported 100. Guess what? There's not enough to go around. Those are going to be expensive. Plus, like any pet trade, I mean, anybody that's done, seen the breeding of boa constrictors and the prices those things command really wouldn't, you know... In comparison, our tarantula species are quite inexpensive compared to what it can cost for some of those designer, you know, ball pythons. That's something that people expect. When you buy a breeding pair, the race is on to produce the first slings to make your money back for the breeding pair. So if you spend a thousand bucks or even two thousand bucks on two spiders to breed and you have babies, you want to make that money back. It's just how it works. I mean, Again, I I get when people get upset. Like I had somebody like, I don't understand why Birupi's Simaroxagorum are so expensive. Well, because there's not enough of them out there to meet the demand because they're also, and you always have to factor this in with spiders, the popularity of certain species does help. If you have a species, that new species that comes out that everybody wants, you're going to be paying a lot for it. You have the T. Celadonia, another one that, well, notorious for what happened with you know the original ones that came over, but that one's tough to get because there's still, you know, people are worried about the legality of it. There's not a lot of them out there. There's not, they weren't really disseminated as much through the United States. So now you're starting to see more and more pop up, but those are going to be expensive slings. They're going to cost money. So think of it this way. And this is how I try to think. Yes, there are species. I just went and looked at a list from a, a company the other day, and there were some spiders I absolutely would, would die to have, like really want. But I looked at the price. And I, I thought to myself, do, do I really need these? And here's the deal. We, this is, this is, this hobby, we are privileged to be able to keep spiders. I've said this before. This is why I freak out every time somebody starts skirting, you know, fish and wildlife rules, or you find out somebody's been brown boxing or using the U.S. Post to ship, whatever it may be. We are privileged to have them, and I don't want that to change. So we always got to keep in mind, this isn't something that's guaranteed to us. This isn't something you know we have every right to. It could change at any time. And not everybody keeps spiders. It's, it's a, As much as the hobby is growing, it's a smaller hobby. So these prices, it kind of, you have to expect when you're keeping an exotic pet like this, if you want the newest, latest thing, it's going to be expensive. If you want something that should be established, you have to keep in mind that it was probably imported, unfortunately. And again, this is why I always encourage, you know, encourage people to breed. This is why I struggle sometimes, because I'll tell you, if I wasn't doing all the Tom's Big Spider stuff, I'd be doing much more active in breeding. I just don't have the time for it. And it kind of kills me because there's species I would absolutely love the pair. I will be doing some more breeding this year, but people will be like, why don't you breed more? Because I spend all my time doing podcasts and videos and articles and, and answering questions. There just isn't enough time in the day. So for the United States, let's keep in mind, we are privileged to be able to keep these guys. And it's not something that we have to keep. You know, bottom line they are not essential to our health and well-being. So when you take that, like with any hobby, and, and the reason I brought collectibles up, because folks will go out there, you know, with the collectible things, that's something that you don't need to do. Like if you want to get into collectible cards, you want to go out and spend, you know, $2,000 on a, a paper card, 
that's up to you. You don't have to do that. If I want to go out and, you know, I talk about my transformer collection. If I go out there and miss something the day it comes out and now I have to spend extra money on eBay for it, I don't need that. I don't have to do it. So bottom line is it's, they're going to be pricey because it is as small, as much as it's growing, it is a smaller hobby and we don't breed enough to sustain it and people will pay the money for it. That's, I mean, bottom line, these things come out. If they came out with spiders, I mean, think about it this way. If they came out with a spider and went, all right, a sling's 300 bucks and nobody bought those spiders, it wouldn't work. They probably, unfortunately, and this has happened before too, and I've spoken to people about this, that you know, they import something, nobody buys it, they finally sell them all off. Guess what? They never import them again. And we've seen, I've seen many spiders over my time in the hobby that came in, it was going to be the new big thing. It didn't catch on. Nobody's going to pay that money to get them in again. So that's something as well. There are many spiders that have disappeared because we are not breeding them and they're not importing them. H. chilensis. Somebody just got H. chilensis in. When I first started buying tarantulas, H. chilensis were basically exported out of Chile and they basically put the kibosh on that. So for a while, you were able to get juveniles and usually what were older females for nothing. Like I, I picked up one at a pet store for 35 bucks. However, now that you can't get them anymore and now that they take so long to grow and there aren't a lot of people breeding them, when they come out, I think the last time I saw slings for sale, they were 90 to $100. Back in the day, you get them for like 25 bucks. The supply, it's supply and demand. There's people want them. They desperately want the species, but they take a long time to grow and there's not a lot of people breeding them. So there you go. You're going to have the higher prices. Another one that easily comes to mind G. rosea, G. porteri, the rose-haired tarantula, the hobby staple, the one that a lot of us that got their first tarantula, myself included, picked one of these up. They were used to be listed as the best beginner species. They were given away when I first got in a hobby. I have one that I got for free. Somebody just went, here you go, take one. Love the little girl. Those are another one. Chile, they stopped exporting them. They were like basically taking every adult they could find and juvenile out of the hobby. So now what we're left with are the ones that we can breed and there wasn't a lot of breeding going on. So guess what? Now the prices of Porteri and Rosea are like back in the day, free or like five, 10 bucks. No joke. Now I think they're like 50, 75. I saw somebody offering one for a hundred for a one inch sling. That's going to drive those prices up. And then of course, the other thing we got to look at is competition. There are a lot of folks out there selling tarantulas nowadays. There are a lot of vendors, which is great, I think, for the hobby. We want to see healthy competition. We all have our favorites. We all have the ones we work with that we end up buying from more often than others. But I, I mean, I check everything out. Every time somebody hits me up with, hey, there's a new company out, I check out, see what they got. But it's going to be one of those deals where if there isn't enough competition between them, if one person manages to import you know, one species that nobody else has, guess what? You can name your price because that's the only place you can get it from. And that's just good business. I know nobody likes, a lot of people are against that and don't like it and think it's icky, but that's how it works. If I went into business to sell tarantulas, I would have to pay for this. I would have to be able to make it pay for itself. And that's how you do it. So as far as the varying prices, I do think it all depends. What'll happen is one month you'll get something. And and I've seen this happen before. One month, all of a sudden, everybody has a certain species in. I don't know. We'll say everybody got a bunch of G. porteri babies in. We'll use that one. And so all the different dealers managed to get in on this. I don't know. Somebody imported a bunch of them from the UK. They they wholesaled them to a bunch of other people. So it seems like, you know, five, six, seven different people have them. So guess what? Those prices will be a little bit lower this time around. So what happens is you go to buy one, you miss out. You're like, dang it. They were like 40 bucks. That was really cheap. I'll have to get them next time. Next time could be months later. And we're talking eight months. Sometimes a year later, they get them back in. Well, guess what? 
This time, only a handful of dealers have them. Guess what? That price is going to be much higher this time around. So all of a sudden, you're looking at it going, wait a minute. Last time these guys were out, they were cheap. Now they're like 90 bucks, 100 bucks. That's kind of how it works. That's why there's so much variance because there's no consistent supply of a lot of the tarantulas we love. None. No consistent. I have species behind me right now that I was hoping would catch on and be popular. And now, like, I end up with a mature male. Like, all right, I got to buy them and get a mature female. Guess what? They are much more difficult to come by. Their prices are much higher. It's a crazy, crazy market. I would never want to do this for a living. A, the, the amount of work it would take would be bonkers. B, the importing, if you're going to really get serious into it, a lot of folks import or have to find somebody that's already importing them. And then here's another little wrinkle in it. So you don't have the importer's license. You're relying on somebody else who's importing, getting a big import in to sell you the spiders wholesale. Well, guess what? Who's getting those spiders for cheaper? The person importing them is paying, say, $25 a piece for them. We'll say it's one of the more expensive ones. They're paying $25 a piece for them. They sell it to you for maybe $35 a piece. So now your price is going to be just a bit higher than theirs. And that's where you're going to have that variance across the different vendors. The one good thing we have in the hobby and that helps a lot of vendors out is the diversity of stock. I think that's the great equalizer in the hobby as far as keeping one person from really running away with the whole show. I have certain tarantulas I want to get. What I do is I hop on to the different dealers and I try to see who's got the most bang for my buck. Sometimes you'll go to one of the big ones and you go, man, they have a lot of really good ones, but they don't have the one that I want. You go over to one of the smaller dealers and you go, and they have it. So now I'm going to go and try to make the most out of my shipping, and I'm going to throw in a couple more species that I was looking for. That's, I think, where it's, it's kind of like nowadays, if you think of shopping nowadays, I want to buy something. I can hop on Amazon. I can check out Target. I can check out Walmart. Everybody's going to have it, and it's going to be the same general price or so. It's because everybody has equal access to it. Now, imagine that only Walmart carried certain things, and imagine only Target carried certain things, and imagine only... Amazon had certain things. It wasn't, you couldn't find everything there. You would have to be a little more, you know, careful with which store you're going to buy from because you you had something you absolutely needed. Now I'm going to try to find as many as the other things I needed at this store. I don't know if that's the greatest example in the world, but I think we've been spoiled by the fact that when it's necessities, you, how many people have, you know, three or four different grocery stores nearby? At that point, you're just price checking. At that point, everybody's going to have the same basic stuff. You're just using your coupons and seeing who has stuff on sales. It doesn't really work that way with tarantulas. Somebody may, I have bought from places before flat out that had the higher prices because they had other things that I wanted. So I may spend more for my OBT, but I'm getting this Formictopus species that I really want that the other people didn't have. Or it might go to the smaller guy because he just has more in stock and cheaper prices. See how it works? So I unfortunately don't see this ever really changing. I think because of the fact with the big biggest aspect of this is the importation. That's going to be the big one because of the fact that we import most of our stock. That's going to cause higher prices. If you go, a lot of people will go, hey, I went on arachnoboards and some of the breeders were selling them for super cheap. I know. That's because they produced them. They can afford to. They're going to wholesale some of them out. They'll save, uh, save some for themselves. That's why I encourage people to look for people like, well, we'll name drop them again, Tom Patterson. Like a lot of folks will go over there and buy from him because they're going to get those better prices because he's the one that produced them, which is great. That's why if you really want to bargain, you go on and find the people that are selling them themselves, that bred them themselves. You will get much cheaper ones. A lot of folks will do the breeding thing 
and they will breed a spider. They won't wholesale them. They'll want to sell them themselves. But in order to move those things quickly, you got to price them to move. Plus, there's the whole shipping aspect of it. So I may find a guy who's selling a couple species I want, but the shipping's going to cost me $75. That will turn some people away. So that will drive them back to the big dealers to try to get that discount on shipping and get more for their bang for their buck. It's, it's a crazy business. So I have some folks that will come on and be like, man, this whole thing's fixed. I think the whole tarantula community is just trying to rip people off and, and do these super high prices. I don't think so. Is there Are there going to be people out there that gouge? Probably. I mean, that's just human nature. There's going to be ones. I honestly haven't been privy to it. I have certain ones that I have a ballpark price in mind. Like I did a little research before I did this and it was a couple species I pulled out and I go, I expect them to be about this much. And everybody I looked up, they were right around that same you know, price point. Some might be $5 cheaper. Some people might be running a deal on it, but overall they're not that different around, you know, between one dealer and the other. I don't think anybody's really going out there like, let's gouge the heck out of them. I just think we don't have an understanding of where our spiders come from. And that's a huge part of it. So I would, I do have an article out there. Maybe I'll put it in here where I do explain the cost of shipping And that really, I think, is an eye-opener for some people when they go, wow, I didn't even think of that. We're thinking they're just breeding them all. And that's the other thing. We're thinking they're all just the breeders are breeding everything they have. And like, why can't they sell them for cheaper? Because they're not breeding everything they have. They're breeding. They're breeding as much as they can because they can make more money off the ones they produce themselves. But they're also importing a lot or buying wholesale from people that are importing. And that jacks up the prices. So my final thought on this one, and and it's a big, complicated issue. There's so much going on here. And again, the big X factor being the fact that these are collectible animals. They are, why do you think right now Formictopus are costing so much money? Why do you think there are $300 Formictopus slings out there? Because there's a Formictopus craze. Everybody has finally seen how awesome they are and everybody wants to be the ones to have the new one. My buddy Robbie and I will be doing a video on Formictopus species. We have this little like running joke going where we're each trying to one-up the other one with Formictopus. I think he's going to beat me now because the ones that he's buying over there overseas in the UK are much cheaper than what I'm able to get over here. So he's probably going to lap me on this one, but there it's a, it's a craze. It's like the whole cr- collectible card craze. All of a sudden the prices go up because everybody's collecting them. Why are the prices of tarantulas continuing to go up? Because we're getting more and more people trying to collect them, but we're not increasing our supply. So that would be my response to that. And I say in the beginning of this that people aren't going to be happy with it because I think they want me to go out and rally and go, yeah, we need to bring them down. Everybody should be able to afford these. I don't agree with that. I think I honestly, and this is going to be a controversial statement, I think that the ones that just come into the hobby, the ones that like literally are a brand new species, should be super high priced because guess who's going to be able to afford them? The people that are going to be able to afford them usually or people at least that are going to be willing to pay that money are the ones that are going to breed them. And we need that. There have been ones I have skipped out on. I had the money. I desperately wanted them. And I made the conscious decision not to buy any because I wasn't sure I was going to breed them. And that's unfair. The people that pick them up, they're going to breed them. They're going to keep them. They have rooms that they can keep them extra warm so they can get that growth rate, get them up. The idea is to get the female and male mature as fast as possible so they can get a sack on them, get more of them into the hobby thank you. Like they're spending gobs of money to get these things in the hobby. That's what we need. When, if they were too cheap, 
and everybody went out there and bought them, even people that were just getting into the hobby had no intention of breeding, that's less breeding stock that's out there. That means there's less of a chance of them getting reproduced and having more slings in the hobby. And that means they're going to be one of those species that are going to be super expensive when they next come out or worst case scenario, which has happened with many of them, we never see them in the hobby again. It's like, remember when these guys came out? They were amazing. Where the heck are they now? Well, nobody wanted them, nobody bred them, or people bought out all the breeding stock, wasn't enough produced, and we don't see them anymore. So I do feel like those super high prices, I've, I've had people come up and go, I, I feel like all spiders should be like affordable to everybody. I can't agree with that. I think that's just the way it is in any pet trade. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to change. So it doesn't really matter. We can argue about it all we want. It's just the way it is. Will they ever come down? That's yet to be seen. I mean, I honestly think some species will be more well-established. I mean, even M. Balfouri, they're still a bit pricey, but I think it's because people are no longer just buying, and I'm partially responsible for this, no longer buying just one at a time or two. They're buying five or six or seven to put them into communals, which means there are fewer to go around to the individuals, which means the prices are going to be high. They have dropped a great deal. My first Balfouri, I believe I, they were selling for 150 each, and I got a deal where I paid 100 each. I want to say it was 100 each. It might have been a little cheaper, but it was an import deal. They were Again, they were being imported. I was reserving them ahead of time. That's a species that has dropped down a bit. H. Polkerpes, the first one I was offered was $350, I think. No, it was $400, $400 for one half-inch sling. Now you can get them for much less. So there are species out there that do become more well-established as the prices go down. But I think for the time being, spending $50 for a sling, just expect it. It's it's what it is. If, if you want to do, you know, find them for cheaper, you need to do your homework, get on the boards, find people that are selling them by themselves, go to those shows where there might be more competition. Otherwise, I think that's just something, at least in the United States, for the foreseeable future we can expect to pay. And then the other thing I didn't touch upon, you know, the Pisolotheria species, those have shot through the roof. And it's because, A, people are still terrified of them and not, they don't sell as well. I've, I've spoken to a couple dealers now that have explained that, yeah, I know you love them, but they're not huge sellers, unfortunately. And then we have the Sri Lankan species that you can, can't sell across state lines. So guess what? nobody's breeding them anymore. And if they are breeding them in your state, they know that you can't go anywhere else to get them unless you're going to find somebody that's shipping them illegally. And we're not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Then you're going to have a situation where you're paying through the roof with it. So hopefully that helps explain it. Again, I'm not trying to be a jerk about the whole thing. I just, for me, I, I, I'm comfortable. With it. I had snakes before. I wanted to get in on some of the ball, but I always wanted a piebald ball python and the prices back in the day, like in the nineties, it was obscene how expensive they were. So I look at that when I came into the hobby, spiders cheap to me. Like I, I was shocked when I'm like, Oh, look at this, this uh, Caribbean versa car, 35 bucks. Uh, one of them's 50 bucks. Okay. I think it just comes down to recognizing that it's, it's, it's going to be this way until we start breeding our own stock. And I don't see us really catching up to those folks overseas anytime soon, which means we're going to continue to import them, which means the prices are going to continue to go up and down, or in some cases, just up, up, up. Because again, I talk to more people every day that are just joining the hobby than I ever did at any point in me doing this Tom's Big Spider stuff all the time. New people joining the hobby. And unfortunately, all these new people, this is great and hopefully it will lead to some more people breeding, but at the same time, it means there are more people looking for spiders and fewer spiders to go around. So... Uh, 
hopefully, again, hopefully that explained it in a way that people are like, all right, it makes more sense. It does it suck a bit? Yes, it does. Obviously, we wish they were all just super cheap, but if they were also just super cheap, I would probably have to have a second house with all the tarantulas I'm, I'm going to have because that is something that deters me from buying some sometimes is the high cost. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on tomsbigspiders at YouTube. Everybody out there, stay safe, and we'll catch you all next time.